Welcome to Marrow Masters, sponsored by Farmer Sicklis and Jansen and Cadman, a Sanofi company. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 7 of our Marrow Masters podcast series focuses on chronic graft-versus-host disease and the long haul some survivors face. Unfortunately, chronic GVHD can last for months, even years. This season, we dig deep and hope to provide some relief. We talk to the experts, from healthcare professionals to survivors and caregivers, about the long-term struggles, setbacks, victories, treatment options, and more. We offer an abundance of resources and address all kinds of GVHD-related issues, including despair, advocacy, mobility, nutrition, sleep issues, caregiving, reproductive and sexual health, intimacy, and more. Our guests share their expertise and insight to help those frustrated and struggling with chronic GVHD to persevere and live their best life. Here's your host, Executive Director of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Anne Hahn of Colorado. So Anne is a long hauler caregiver to her daughter, Jenny. And I'm going to let Anne share their story. But I do want to say something. Anne is not only extraordinary, but so real about it all. I am humbled and honored to help Anne share her family's journey. And by the way, her daughter, Jenny, she's pretty incredible, too, just like her mom. You'll get to meet her another time. But for today, we're going to talk to Anne. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about Jenny's initial diagnosis and your role, too. Peggy, thank you so much for asking me to be on this podcast. It's quite an honor to speak to you and to your audience who goes through so much with chronic GVHD. Jenny's story began back in March of 2011, and I remember it pretty clearly because I was at the airport in Atlanta getting ready to come home. I traveled weekly, and Jenny called me in a state of panic and was at the emergency room. Her numbers had tanked, and they were getting ready to admit her. And initially, we thought, you know, over the years that Jenny had a very minor chronic blood cancer that turned out to be misdiagnosed. So in March 2011, it turned out that that minor chronic blood cancer we thought she had actually was myelofibrosis. And myelofibrosis was morphing into CML as well. Jenny was to the point where she was going to start needing blood transfusions, and they started chemo on her right away in the hospital. And I remember the doctor pulling me aside and telling me that the disease Jenny had was terminal and that she probably had less than a year to live. So uh, being who I am, I just didn't accept that. And of course, I was devastated. Our family was devastated. Jenny was somewhat in a surreal state with her own thinking. She was probably the calmest of all of us. But I called Jenny's best friend, Carolyn, and asked her to help me get her to Mayo Clinic because we weren't going to take one doctor's word in Colorado that there was no hope for Jenny. And so off we went to Mayo Clinic in April, and the news there wasn't great either. Unfortunately, Mayo told us that Jenny's cancer was myelofibrosis and that it was considered incurable. Many people lived 
for several years, but Jenny had progressed to a point where they were concerned that she would be progressing more rapidly into AML. We talked about a bone marrow transplant with Mayo Clinic as an option, but they were afraid Jenny was too fragile to get through a bone marrow transplant. Jenny had a lot of other complications. She had a blood clotting disorder called Bud Chiari that was also complicating the situation. And so we left Mayo Clinic actually on my birthday without a lot of hope. We got back to Colorado and Carolyn, Jenny's best friend, did more research for us and discovered a doctor at Colorado Blood Cancer Institute that she wanted us to talk to, Dr. Mark Brunvon. And so we went to see Dr. Mark, and that's when we finally got our first glimmer into hope for Jenny. Mark felt that he could get Jenny through transplant, even with all her complications, and that it would take a while to get her ready. They had to get her prepared for transplant. And it wasn't quite remission, but it was at least getting the blood counts a little bit more stable before going into transplant itself. And so that was about a six-month process. So during that time, Jenny was pretty sick. She was on a lot of heavy-duty chemo. And I moved in with Jenny and her children. She was a single parent at the time, dating a lovely man who subsequently went on to become her husband. And we were just on autopilot for six months. And because Jenny was so sick as a caregiver, I stepped in and did the domestic chores as well as the physical caregiving of Jenny. So there was always family laundry to do, cleaning the house, really important for us to keep the grandkids to a normal routine. And then, of course, there were just doctor appointments at least five times a week, taking Jenny to get blood transfusions or taking her to and from chemo. Um, Of course, with chemo, there always comes the upset stomach. So it was, quite frankly, just cleaning up a lot of puke, too, including pulling over on the side of the road, driving her home so that she could throw up. Oh, boy. There was, you know, taking my granddaughter to her ballet performance, rushing Jenny to the ER at 11 p.m. at night because she had a fever spike, grocery shopping, making dinner. And I was still working full time. So my boss just let me work from home. And so oftentimes it was after the kids in bed and I was working till one or two in the morning. Wow. It was exhausting, you know, but we had hope. And when you have hope... You muscle through. You just push through it all. I think the hardest part during that time, however, wasn't all the work that was done to just take care of the family and continue to work and take care of Jenny. It was really waiting on all of the results, waiting on the biopsies, waiting on the blood tests, you know, waiting in the transfusion room while she got chemo. And the hardest wait of all was waiting to see if she had a bone marrow donor match. The good news for Jenny, of course, as everybody will know now, since she does have Kraft-versus-host disease, is that she did have a match. And so, you know, we just all felt so grateful and so hopeful during that time. Oh, Anne, that's great. So happy to hear that. And we're going to continue this story. So now Jenny has a match. So let's talk about preparing for transplant as the caregiver. Yeah, so because Jenny was a single mom, she was in a relatively new relationship with her boyfriend. You know, we had to arrange for childcare because Jenny was going into isolation for 30 days. And then after that, she was going into an apartment 
close to the hospital for 100 days. So we had 130 days we had to work out childcare. And I just have such a wonderful village of friends. I called my girlfriends and said, we're going to need your help. And Jenny's, when she gets out of the hospital, she's going to want me to go home and take care of the kids. So can you come stay with her in the apartment? We had a whole schedule. And so we had that post-transplant 100 days covered with my girlfriends coming in a week at a time, some of them to two weeks at a time, taking care of Jenny. And, you know, then I went home to take care of the kids. During the time we were in isolation, and by the way, I went into isolation with Jenny, so I lived in the hospital room with her. Wow. Her dad stepped in. He flew in from Florida. He was absolutely wonderful. He took care of the kids. Her boyfriend stepped in and took care of the kids. His mother came out and took care of the kids. And remember, this is a new relationship. Sure. And he's probably thinking, what have I gotten myself <laughs> into here? Well, he was the real deal, that's for sure. Boy, he was. And we just love Josh so much. He is, <laughs> he is just a wonderful, wonderful husband and stepdad. But there was, you know, a lot to prepare. And everybody who goes through transplant has a lot to prepare. And sometimes they're doing it on their own without a caregiver helping them. With Jenny, she was really fortunate because she had such a good village and so much help. I also had to, you know, pay all my bills in advance. During the same time as we were preparing to get Jenny into transplant, my mother suddenly passed away. It was just so awful. Oh, it was two weeks before Jenny was scheduled to go into the hospital and so unexpected. So then there was comforting my dad, and, and I just had to learn to shelf my grief. And, you know, I come from strong pioneer stock. My mom was such a strong woman, so I just channeled mom and just pushed through like a bull. <laughs> and I addressed my grief about losing my mother years later. <laughs> but, you know, that's what women do. We carry the water. For sure. And I just, you know, embraced hope. And then finally we got admitted to the hospital with her match, you know, confirmed. And that first week, it was just really busy. It was chemo every day for Jenny to prepare for her transplant. And part of what I had to do during that time was resist being institutionalized with Jenny in the hospital <laughs> because I was living there with her, you know? Sure. And it's a small room. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I kept busy. I did Jenny's laundry, you know, again, cleaned up more puke, held her hand. We cried together. We laughed together. We played games. We cried some more. Well, and one of the things that I did to help me cope, probably not the greatest coping strategy, but hey, it worked at the time, is I snuck in a glass of wine every night. <laughs> Good for you. I had my nightly glass of wine in the hospital room <laughs> after all the lights were turned off. <laughs> and I did that throughout the whole 30 days. Now, I had to like... Let go of the wine when I got out of the hospital, but, <laughs> but it helped me cope during that 30-day period. And the nurses, I'm sure, knew I did that, and they just turned a blind eye, you know? Sure. It wasn't a bad time during the chemo period. Jenny fell asleep a lot. She felt sick, but she was so excited about getting her transplant. She fell asleep a lot. We would rewatch the same movie a dozen times because she would <laughs> fall asleep in different parts of it. Yeah. So, you know, I learned to really... Also, try to figure out how to take care of myself so I would get outside every day and walk. And I just developed a great love of coffee. I'm sure. But I really hated the hospital showers for guests. They were, <laughs> that, that was, I had to really get over the ick factor. I bet. I bet. 
Thank you for sharing all of this. Okay, so now we get to transplant day, and then it's early days post-transplant, more isolation. How did you manage all of the emotions during this time, Anne? It was tough. You know, I I was a yo-yo with my emotions, and I think that's what caregivers have to... I didn't... I resisted that when I first went in. I wanted to be so stoic all the time, but I had to learn that I'm human. And I had good days and I had bad days. You know, the day of Jenny's transplant, we were celebrating, but it was also a really, really hard day on Jenny because she had radiation twice on that day. Mm. And it was full body radiation. Wow. And so she was so tired by the time her stem cells came in from Europe, which, by the way, they arrived in an igloo cooler, you know, that the transplant was kind of a non-event for Jenny. It was a big event for us. For her, her dad was there, her, her boyfriend was there, her now husband, and I was there, and we were elated. But, you know, the next 25 days in isolation, the emotions just kind of swung all over the place. And it was a lonely period of time. You know, when someone goes through transplant, they get neutropenic, and they have very low blood counts and are highly susceptible to infections. So we as a family made a decision no one was going to come in and see Jenny during that 25 days in isolation. So it was Jenny and me. And most of the time, Jenny was really kind of out of it. She had a lot of bone pain. That's what happens when you start to engraft. Okay. She was on pain meds. She was sleeping a lot. And when she was awake, she didn't feel good. So, you know... I sat there just watching, waiting for engraftment, charting blood work. You know, I did things like knitting blankets for other cancer patients to try to help get my head out of everything that was going on in our room. And there were times when I was angry and and resentful and sometimes short-tempered with friends and family whose lives were just going on. I was watching them live their life, taking, you know, their grandchildren to ballets or celebrating their daughter's big events in life. And here my daughter was fighting for her life. Sure. And then I would feel guilty about feeling that way because our village was so wonderful (laughs) to us. You know, we couldn't have asked for a better village. So I was so grateful to friends and family for all their help. So one minute I wanted connections, the next minute I didn't want connections. And it was just, you know, all these feelings and nowhere to put the feelings. And I think that is the struggle of the caregiver. You you can't pass those feelings on to your child who is fighting for her life, so you bottle it. And that's what I did. I bottled a lot of it. I did try to do other things. I went for walks, you know, in the really cold January weather with snow. Again, you know, hot coffee became just something I glommed on to for some reason. And, you know, Jenny wanted me to do a blog for her and she would dictate it. So that helped a little bit. And that's still out on our our website. But a lot of times, you know, I would just be watching Jenny sleep and praying over her and holding her and helping her to the bathroom and helping her throw up in the toilet and then soothing her back to sleep. And nighttime would come. I'd have my night glass of wine. I'd inflate my air mattress. I'd make my bed. I'd lay down. And then all night long, beep, beep, beep the IV alarms would go off. So there was not very good rest in the hospital. And I I am just almost speechless. Just you are something else. And I know Jenny is too. And I, I just know that this is going to inspire so many people that can relate to the isolation and all these feelings. You just make it so real. And I appreciate that. So now it's time for 
Jenny to get released. Tell us about that part of the journey. Well, that was so joyful. I bet. We're so excited and scared. (laughs) Here we are being released to an apartment that's like a mile away from the hospital so that if anything happens, we can get Jenny there quickly. And that was, by the way, a requirement of the hospital for her to go through transplant. And so we were scared because we didn't have the nurses, you know. I was going to be the nurse the first week, and then my friends who became caregivers were going to be the nurse. And listen, my degree is not in nursing, Mm -hmm. but they prepared us really well. And I still remember the day we walked out of the hospital. Jenny actually was rolled out in her wheelchair. Her dad again was there, and her, her boyfriend was there, and her brother was there. And I got Jenny in the car to go over to the apartment and everybody was going to meet us over there. She still couldn't see her children yet. And that really almost destroyed her. But I remember her just sitting in the car and crying and saying, Mom, just roll down the window so I can smell the air. (laughs) And that has always, you know, always stayed with me that you know, you, you live in a hospital room for 30 days. You don't leave the ward. You only walk around the halls of that ward. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize how much you miss nature, how much you miss hearing the wind, smelling the trees, smelling, you know, the grass. Well, of course, there wasn't grass then because it was in February, but just even smelling the snow because snow actually has a smell. (laughs) So who knew? You know, I, I think, I mean, you know, getting into this stage, we were elated and we had no idea that we were just at the very beginning of the race. Okay. We thought, you know, this was going to be a sprint, and it has turned out to be a marathon. Isn't that the truth? So the focus of this season is on GVHD, and I know you had mentioned that Jenny was given the gift of GVHD. So let's talk about how a caregiver, someone especially like you that's been with Jenny through it all, how do you saddle up for the long haul? Yeah, well, you don't. You don't know. You don't know till you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we knew she needed to get GVHD to some degree or she wouldn't engraft. You you have to get some level of GVHD. So when we saw the first signs of GVHD, we were excited because that was a positive sign. Jenny was engrafting. And from my Memory, I believe that is called acute GVHD. Uh What we didn't know is that Jenny was going to get chronic GVHD. And so as the days kind of evolved into months and then months into years, it became very apparent that Jenny was one of those individuals who would end up with the chronic version of GVHD. Now, for Jenny, you know, GVHD can attack different parts of the body. In Jenny's case, it really attacks her joints, her gut, and her skin. With her gut, when GVHD flares up, she'll have trouble eating, you know, anything but soft foods, and sometimes not even that. With her skin, she'll get these rashes and bumps that are very irritable and very visible also. They're very red. But really, her GVHD affects her mostly in her joints. That's where it's been the worst. And It ebbs and flows with the GVHD because she can go a while without any trouble at all, and then all of a sudden there will be a flare-up. So over the years, Jenny has, you know, periodically had trouble walking. There's been times when she's had to be in a wheelchair, other times when she's on a walker, and then other times on a cane, and then other times when she's walking without any of these helpful aids. 
Huh. If it's okay, I'd like to share a story with you about her GVHD that I, I think is kind of funny. Sure. And we've learned to laugh. You know, we have to embrace this. There's resisting doesn't do any good. <laughs> you either get chronic GVHD or you don't. And resisting doesn't make any difference. So, you know, we've learned as a family to embrace it. And Jenny certainly has. So Jenny, you know, after when she was going through a transplant, I said to her, you get through this transplant. She always wanted to go to Europe. I said, we're going to take you to Europe first class. And we're going to, at that point in time, she and Josh were engaged. And so, you know, we knew they were going to get married. So so as soon as you're well enough, we're going to take you and Josh to Europe first class. By the time we went, they were actually married. We had to wait for her to get a little bit better. Okay. And at that time, her GVHD of the joints were in full flare-up, and she was primarily mobile in a wheelchair. Okay. And she wanted to see England, France, and Germany. And we said, okay, we're going with the wheelchair. Now, if you could see her husband, Josh, you would understand why I thought this would be okay to do this because he's very strong, very fit, and incredibly muscular. But even Josh, <laughs> at times, like, Europe's cobblestones. Oh, know? wow. And they're uneven cobblestones. And he's rolling her over these uneven cobblestones. And Jenny's going, bump, 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 bump. <laughs> but, but she just, she embraced every minute of Europe. You know, getting on the trains was so interesting and challenging because those trains in Europe leave on time. They wait on no one. Okay. So here, you know, we had to get Jenny out of the wheelchair, up into the train. So my husband would take her and get her seated. We had so many bags with us because we had to take IV fluids with us and <laughs> we were doing a two-week trip. So we had all this luggage with her medication and her fluids in the wheelchair. And and so Josh is literally throwing stuff up onto the train while I'm trying to get it settled into the luggage racks. And people are trying to maneuver around us. And I don't, they just probably thought those crazy Americans don't know how to travel, <laughs> you know? We always bring too much. Oh, I love it. But really, so much of it was her medical stuff that we had to bring. So we all just would laugh about it and just have a good time with it. You know, the GVHD of the joints, it's not just that it makes her immobile. It causes pain. You know, there's quite a considerable amount of pain in the joints. And so she took a lot of pain meds when she was really, really hurting. And so there were times she would fall asleep in key places that she wanted to see, like the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. So she kind of missed it. But we took pictures and showed it to her afterwards where she's kind of conked out in her chair. Hey, she was there, right? She was there, yeah. So, you know, we just, I don't know, we just had, a, we figured out how to deal with it. You know, even on the plane, we were in first class and Jenny had to have her IVs and we would just hang the IV bag from the ceiling. The flight attendants were so helpful doing that. Passengers kind of looked at us like, whoa, what's that all about? But, you know, we just did it. Yeah, you sure did. You know, it's been 10 years now since Jenny had her transplant and her chronic GVHD is not as bad as it was in the early years. Good. And so I want to give people hope who's hearing this. You know, if you're in your early stages of transplant and you've got chronic GVHD, just know in time, it's going to level out. It doesn't mean it will ever go away. For Jenny, it hasn't gone away. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be. And we, you know, we reached out to someone who was a long-term survivor and asked them what their experience was with their chronic GVHD. They told us it took about six years for them to kind of get into a rhythm with the chronic GVHD. 
And that was about what it was for Jen, too. Okay. She still has GVHD. She still gets a type of chemo several times a year for her GVHD. She still has flare-ups. She hasn't been in a wheelchair for a long time. Well, that's good news. She does have to use a cane periodically. Some of that may be for the GVHD, but also, you know, Jenny had necrosis of her hip from the radiation and had to have a hip replacement. So it's multifaceted. It's not just chronic GVHD that plays into the marathon, but it is part of it. And I just want people to know it ebbs and flows. We look at this as a chronic illness, like someone who may have lupus or MS. They learn to live with it. And Jenny Mm -hmm. has learned to live with her chronic GVHD. And she just, she accepts it. She's one of the 50% who ended up with it. And she has said, she'll tell you, when you talk to Jenny, she'll tell you that she'll take her chronic GVHD over the terminal blood cancer any day of the week. Wow, that's good. She's so thankful for the progress that GVHD treatment has made over the last 10 years. And she's hopeful that even more innovative treatment is forthcoming. And we have all learned to manage the flare-ups better. And what that really means is just granting Jenny Grace to rest and take care of herself when she's in the middle of a flare-up. And that's what any of your audience out there who is dealing with chronic GVHD needs to do too. Grant yourself grace. Absolutely, and This is terrific. And I will tell you, it is so exciting right now. The novel treatments that are coming out at such a record speed, there is definitely big things on the horizon and big things that have just been in the last few years. So there is a lot of hope for people listening. Next, let's talk about where you guys are today. Your new normal, Jenny's. Being such a, a mega caregiver, just let us know where you are today, I guess. Okay. Well, we're in a much better place today. You know, Jenny and I became very enmeshed with each other. We've, we've <laughs> always been very close. We have a very close mother-daughter bond. She has a very close mother-daughter bond with her daughter. And, you know, when you go into isolation with your daughter for 30 days and you are caregiving for a couple of years, it's hard not to become enmeshed. So our boundaries just got erased. They were just <laughs> non-existent. And I was stepping into territory I should not have stepped in. She's an adult. And she got to a point where she was able to take control of her own decisions about her health. And sometimes I didn't agree with the route she was going. I thought she would maybe was putting herself at risk. And I needed to back off. I needed to learn that I no longer fulfilled that role. And that was hard for us to, you know, kind of separate. And Jenny had a high dependency on me. So Jenny was going through a learning curve to separate as well. So we've had really healthy conversations about this. And listen, we had great arguments, really great arguments. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) And then we would go, we're so enmeshed. We're so unhealthy. That's we great. have to create space. <laughs> so uh-huh. We've gotten there. I think I feel like we're there now. I really do. I think I've had to learn how to create space for me to self-receive again because I was in that giving place for so long. Sure. And Jenny needed space for me to get back into that adult relationship with her. You know, my mothering shouldn't be hovering. and. You know, I think when I look back on all the caregiving years, 
And there's not a lot of caregiving I have to do anymore for Jenny. She's so self-sufficient. She's got a wonderful husband, adult children now of her own. But I do step in periodically. She still gets hospitalized every once in a while. I just look back and say, and this is just for caregivers in general. I think any caregiver will say this is, isn't just my viewpoint. But when you are called to caregive, it really is a sacred honor. Yeah. It's such a sacred honor to have someone ask you to help them when they are the most vulnerable and at their weakest and most fragile state. Yeah. And I, I look at that. I feel like I've walked on sacred ground and it has been an absolute honor and a gift for me to be Jenny's mother and her caregiver. And we just live in hope and we live in gratitude and we keep trying to pay it forward because it was paid forward for us by so many. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm just a little bit speechless here, Anne. Uh, you really nailed it. Um, so, Anne, there's another part of your story that we haven't gotten to yet, and I'm really excited to talk about this. You, in your spare time, started a foundation called Jenny's Hope. Please tell us about this because it's so interesting, and I know a big part of the mission is to sign up bone marrow donors to the registry, and that is so very important. So tell us about it. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole history of how this started, but I will tell you that I had a spiritual prodding to start Jenny's Hope Foundation, and I did it before Jenny even had a match, before we knew that she had a match. And I had an awareness that Jenny would have a match and that she would be okay. And so I started a foundation called Jenny's Hope Foundation, again, before Jenny even had a match on the registry. And I called on my network of friends. I'm very fortunate to have a wide network. I always say I have a big life because I have a lot of people in my life that just fulfill Jenny and me and our family. And they stepped right in and helped. And it was 11 years ago in June that I started the foundation. And over the years, we have done, I can't even tell you how many bone marrow donor registrations we've done. It's to get individuals on the registry. We continue to do these drives. We've definitely made an impact. I need to get updated numbers, but I will tell you we have affected probably at least around 75 people's lives in finding them a match. And it's not easy to find a match. It takes a lot of people to be on the registry to find a match. And so our goal is to educate, help people understand that they can save a life with an organ donation because bone marrow is considered an organ donation as are stem cells without having to die. And we're so proud of what we've accomplished and proud of our volunteers. Now, it's hard to sustain a nonprofit for 11 years. The volunteers get tired. The board gets tired. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want Jenny's Hope to just kind of die on the vine. So we recently merged with a foundation called Small Choices here in Denver, and it is run by Katie Poppert Sullivan. And Katie was one of Jenny's infusion nurses. And Katie has a whole history in the blood cancer world with family members. And she is so passionate and so energetic about helping people. And she's always had a nonprofit and it's just a match made in heaven. And so we have become a subsidiary of Small Choices now. And if you just Google Small Choices, you'll find 
Katie's website and you'll find Jenny's Hope as a tab out on that website. I already did and I, I loved it. So Anne, I just want to let you know that in the show notes, we can include different links for Small Choices and Jenny's Hope and people can learn more about it when they're not driving. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> thank you so much for doing that. Oh, no, it's our pleasure. And I just want to thank you again for sharing your heart and your grit and your grace. Uh, what a family. I'm just so humbled and inspired by you. Well, thank you so much, Peg, and for getting the word out. We, you know, we've been following BMT Link for a long time, and it's such a great resource. And I really want to thank, you know, the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity to share our story, but also for what you do for everyone out there. The blood cancer world is a small world, and we get each other's language, and we need to help continue to support one another and the support you all provide is just invaluable. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for that. We we sure love what we do around here and uh, the podcasts are definitely one of the best parts. And I thank you again for being a part of this one and uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode of our show. Follow the Marrow Masters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. To connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes. The Marrow Masters Podcast is produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.